What's up, guys? Today we're talking about the Hypnosis Song Fund, a UK-based music, intellectual property, investment, and song management company, the big title, that's been the last couple of years acquiring the rights to hundreds of artist catalogs and tens of thousands of songs. We're talking about like close to 60,000 songs. I'm Winton Yates with my legal homies, Max Haas and Peter Speroni. Guys, what does it mean that this one mega company is snapping up all of this music? Peter. I, uh, at first I wanted to hate this company, but it, it, the more research I do, I actually really, really love the idea of this company. And um, I think it's a, a, a huge opportunity to invest as individual retail investors into the mus musicians and the catalogs and the publishing royalties and every future streaming royalty from the artists that you love. I think the platform is set up really, really well. And I was concerned about hearing investment firm at first, but because I was concerned that they weren't going to be able to actually handle the music well for licensing and everything else but their team is industry executives their board of directors everybody has have such an extensive career in music where I'm, I'm pretty confident that the, the the projections and their growth are pretty real and I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of individual investor um, comes out to to invest in this sort of new market invest in music it's interesting Max, what are your thoughts you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, but it's, uh, you know, one thing that concerns me is that this is, you know, massive consolidation, right? We've got all these big artists. Hypnosis is at a point now where they control, you know, a huge chunk of the mainstream stuff that you hear on the radio and in your Spotify playlists and whatnot. But to Peter's point, the more I learn about kind of the mission behind the company, I'm thinking maybe there's something here, but... There's still a lot to explore and a lot to talk about with this. All right, let's, so let's get into the current event that kind of brought this conversation up. Okay, so within the past like year, we've seen this wave of iconic song songwriters and artists that have been selling their catalogs for like wild sums of money, including Bob Dylan, who sold his catalog to Universal Group for. I think it was estimated between 300 million and 400 million. Stevie Nicks sold about 80% uh, of her rights to Primary Wave for around $100 million. Uh, and one of the names that we're hearing in a lot of these uh, acquisitions of these catalogs is the Hypnosis Song Fund, uh, founded by the British music manager, and I will forever mess his name up, Merrick. Merrick. Merc Mercuriitis. Mercuriitis. I will forever mess that up. That's, the best, that's my best yeah. guess. And, uh, and Niles Rogers. And we know Niles Rogers. He is the, the baseline of all of your favorite hits ever, current and back in the day. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're hearing about this hypnosis fund. And in the last year or the last three years, they've spent a little bit over $2 billion acquiring the catalogs to artists like Shakira. Benny Blanco, L.A. Reid, Neil, Neil Young, Nelly, Rick James, RZA of Wu-Tang Clan, Timbaland, Rick James. Like, just this eclectic mix of names and artists, including most recently uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, who I was just listening to. Um, what was – I know when the three of us, when we first saw this, we all kind of were like, ooh, this, this could get weird. 
since you've had a chance to kind of absorb it a little bit, Peter, what what are your thoughts on like all of this acquisition of all of these iconic some of these songs that they're acquiring are like ingrained in the spirit of humanity <laughs> definitely i mean that's that's the thing and, and that was my initial concern was you know you're handling the art of the greatest music contributors of all time you know i mean you're 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 handling a catalog that is precious to all of the fans so you know you're an investment firm sure but what are you going to do with that music to maintain its you know its its value over time and you know they're really focused and a lot of their growth projections are really talking about how streaming um and i think this is really important too because we hear a lot you know with streaming royalties especially on something like spotify platform paying less or whatever um we we hear a lot about that being an issue and what they're really um, starting to see is that, you know, back in the day when we, before streaming, when we bought CDs, when we bought, you know, tapes or whatever it may be, we really only purchased about four or five CDs a year, like the average person. So when you break down that cost of what people spent on music listening back in the day, it's actually less than they spend on that $9.99 a month subscription to Spotify and the other uh, sources that they're on. So the income itself now with 450 million global paid subscribers on streaming, the income is increasing over time. So this company here is, is, is focused on growing out the streaming platform. And I think that's, that, that, that's smart. It makes a lot of sense. And, it, and like I, I mentioned, it's a, it's a clearly growing market. People are spending more money on music than they used to. And the company is, is capitalizing off that. Yeah, I mean, what it really comes down to is they are a financial company, an investment company that happens to be run by people who love music and care a lot about music. And so, um, you know, when, when you see just the headlines, you see, oh man, this one company keeps buying up all these catalogs, but then you find out a little bit more about what their investment policy is. And you look at what they're doing. And to Peter's point, you know, they're seeing the long term. they're seeing guaranteed revenue streams from an asset and they see it as an opportunity to to leverage that in the various ways the financial sector can do that, whether it be with bonds, longer term investments, uh, you know, essentially sort of treating it not exactly like a stock market, but you know, copyrights have such a long duration that there's real potential for long term money growth when you have things kind of pooled in one place like this, and so. What it looks like they're doing is, to the extent they can, they're actually purchasing the entire copyright on the on the publishing side, the musical composition side. And then when they where they aren't able to do that, um, or I guess, it, let me back up. They purchase the, the copyright and then they look for ways to license that out. So they're actively seeking revenue generating opportunities. And then on the investor side, they're bringing people in who can put money in that allow them to go and buy more catalogs and grow their team and really bring in the top-notch management and administrators who know music and know music licensing to do this well to 
not only provide a return on the investment to their investors, but also make these catalogs more valuable, make them more prominent in the public space, find new commercial opportunities for them, and so on. Yeah, and uh, I was reading something about the CEO. He was talking about how he wants to bring in, uh, he wants to acquire these songs and look for opportunities in film, TV, video games, commercials, have other artists cover these songs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, And then he went on to say that with the iconic catalogs that he is acquiring, he has this understanding that some of these songs are so ingrained, like we were talking about, ingrained into the fabric and culture of the world that the income stream from them is predictable and constant. And it's not contingent mm-hmm. on what's happening with the market. So it can be on the market and not be affected by whatever else is happening on the market because it is not attached to what else is going on. It's only attached to our connection to the actual music, which really resonated with me. I don't know if that resonated with you guys, but I think it brought out that understanding of like, he gets that music is not necessary. Like the first thing with music is how does it affect you on the inside? And then it kind of goes, it's gets real hippie. I know, but it, it <laughs> that's, you know that's I mean? your, that I agree. I mean, that's maintaining the integrity of, of, the song and what it was about. I mean, that I, I completely agree with that. I think that's the important part. And that's why I'm glad that they've got the, you know, the powerhouse creative team on the back end, you know, people that have been doing it for 30 years that are now getting synchronization licensing, public performance license, you know, everything under the sun. So you have, you have two sort of things here where you have this investment money coming in and, you know, and to, to Max's point, you know, they're, they're they're trying to obtain all of the rights, you know, pub, uh, public performance rights, uh, the writer share and the publishing share, but they don't always get that. So obviously, whatever if there's any kinds of restrictions on their ownership, and they do own it out in full, um, it actually would make that particular song worth a bit less because they have less of the sticks in the bundle of sticks of intellectual property. So. That 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 will be interesting to see how they sort of parse that out and their purchasing power, um, and their you know sort of belief in in product moving forward. And then basically they're cre- creating so each individual song on their on in their catalog is a actual individual asset. So you're investing it in as a whole, and then they're basically commingling. It's a commingled trust, is what it looks like, and they're pooling all of the assets together. And then you're buying shares into the company, and your interest is in the overall success of the company, which will pay out dividends. So obviously, as an investor in other things, that that's really good to hedge your risk, because you know, let's say you have um, a, a really successful song. Actually, this is a this is a, a good point here if you're going to do things like a short sale if you're going to try and play the market a little bit as an investor you might even look at like a seasonal short sale type scenario they have right here on their site one of the songs they acquired was mariah carey's all i want for christmas is you every year that comes back to number one so the value of that song is going to go up seasonally so it'll be interesting to see how the the investment world actually works in investing in music, which isn't something we've ever done before. So this whole new concept is you sort of stay with the music as you move forward and you hedge your risk according to how successful a song is in in society. You know, every day, you know, 
seasonal things, whatever, uh, current events. Uh, it's an interesting aspect of it. I'm definitely investing in this, by the way. It's only on the uh, London uh, stock stock exchange now, but yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely take a look at this and and learn how they're doing this because I think it's fascinating. I think this is a great segue into us uh, taking a look at the big picture. Okay, Max, I want to get your take on this. Uh, I was I was reading where the founder Merrick. Sorry if I'm uh, referring to you by your first name. I do not want to butcher your last name. Uh, Merrick was basically saying that this all came from a place that he believes that publishing today is a broken model, and he wants to move it into a space where it's more of replacing it with song management. Mm -hmm. Agree? Disagree? You know... He's obviously got a lot more experience in the industry than than I do, but I can see what he's getting at. And and I think I watched uh, the same interview that that you had watched, where I learned quite a bit about sort of the the method behind the madness here. And um, one thing that he really emphasized, kind of to Peter's point about investment in music, is that traditionally the the relationship between the money and the song was really fragmented you would have either a songwriter who's also a recording artist signed to a record label where the label only has any real control over the recordings and not the actual compositions and then that artist might or might not have a publishing deal and if they do have a publishing deal it's going to be with a totally separate company and so there's this big disconnect because it's the label investing in the artist to make the record, but then the artist has got a totally separate relationship with the publishing company. And then because the composition is inextricably linked to the recording, all of the value on the publishing side is fully dependent upon what the record label does. And we're talking, you know, the pre Napster era when everything was about physical album sales. There was literally only so much you could do. There was a ceiling on what you could do on the musical composition publishing side of the equation. And so, um, you know, when we talk about investment, really the, there, there has been investment in music, but it was only coming from record labels. And those weren't really investments when you sort of break down what an investment truly is. They were loans with really bad terms. You know, they would pay an artist in advance and then reclaim all of these various expenses that only the label had control over whether they were incurred or not. And so they basically got to decide when and how the artist repaid the, the loan that they gave them. Um, and then in the meantime, the label is fully in control of what happens on the publishing side because there weren't that many revenue generating opportunities um, in the pre-digital era for, for the compositions. And so now it's really sort of cut through all of that and introduced a totally new model, which in some ways isn't new because publishers have been adjusting to the digital era and sync licensing is one of the biggest uh, revenue streams uh, for, for at least established artists. Um, but there's still this disconnect with the labels and everything else. And so, you know, part of what we're seeing is Hypnosis is only buying catalogs from artists who have more or less kind of 
transcended their record label period of their career, right? Neil Young, Barry Manilow, Lindsey Buckingham, they're not worried about how their albums are selling, right? They, they released all their big hits in the 70s, 60s maybe in some cases. And so now it's the song that's out there. And the song can be in digital form, it can be embedded into a movie or TV show, all these different revenue generating opportunities that really don't depend on a record label at all. So song management seems to be kind of a um, more sustainable model for the economic reality that the, that the music industry exists in now. If that makes sense. No, that that was actually going to be my next question. Do you think that this this model is sustainable, Peter? Do you think they can keep going in this direction, especially thinking from uh, the the investment position uh, that you were talking about earlier, saying that you're you're definitely going to invest in this? Do you think this is sustainable? I think it's a better model um, than what's currently in place. I think they've adopted um, sort of a hybrid model in, in terms of looking at the industry the way that it is now and incorporating some of those elements into their uh, portfolio and strategy now when acquiring music. For example, you know they still do advances in some way to artists if you want to sell your catalog. That's an option. They can acquire songs not only through purchasing them but through an exchange of shares. So they could actually give you shares of the company in exchange for your catalog. So there's a lot of different things that they can do. And I think that that, that diversity is important. And I think that, that, is, that that's why I think it makes it better. But if we're looking at the concept of investment in general, and we're looking at these as actual like planned assets, like assets of you know, an investment portfolio, you know, you've got all sort of, you know, how do you break down those fees? And if you if you look at sort of some of the fees that come out, you know, there's an investment portfolio manager that is looking for other opportunities to invest with the current funds that are in there. So that's something, you know, that they're doing as well. So they're, they're obviously going to be subject to a ton of fiduciary duties and, you know, a bunch of other things. So that actually maybe can hedge some of the risk for people because you can't really grossly deviate away from, you know, you can't self deal. You can't really grossly deviate away from making the portfolio better. So if I think there'll be personal accountability for really bad decisions from an investment standpoint. And I think that they're going to have to, um, provide that sort of competent financial advice as part of this where, the labels or publishers, they didn't make that promise. It wasn't an investment. It was like, hey, if we do this wrong, sorry, you're out. Here, it's like, well, if they grossly deviate away from an investment portfolio duties, fiduciary duties, then there might be some sort of recourse for the shareholders. There might be, you know, there might be some sort of way to, to, to get your money back. So I don't know. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a better model. So what does this mean for, yeah. what does this mean for, artists in general when we're looking at an artist that is selling their catalog what does that in, what does that mean when you sell your catalog yeah so you know this as with a lot of these topics we cover on this podcast it you know helps to sort of start with the copyright basics and some of this is stuff we, we've explained a bit in the past but 
um, you know, with with any recorded music, you have two separate copyrights. So for you know, take one of your favorite songs you hear on the radio. There is a copyright for the recording, which is just the sounds that you hear, and there's a separate copyright for the underlying composition, which comprises the music itself, like the chord progression, the melody, um, regardless of how it gets recorded, and also usually the lyrics are included in the composition as well. And so when we talk about selling a catalog, usually, and this is where the industry terminology gets a little fuzzy, but usually that refers to an artist's or a songwriter's entire body of compositions. So of all the songs they've written, regardless of whether they're the recording artist on those songs, we're talking about the actual compositions that, that are created by that person. And so, um, as I said, you know, whether you're signed to a record label or not, you usually maintain some kind of separate control over the musical composition copyrights. And so that's where artists may choose to remain independent on the publishing side and self-administer. Um, that's often pretty challenging to do unless you have industry contacts and know how to deal with sync licenses and performing rights organizations and all that kind of thing. Um, but more commonly, they'll go out and try to find a publishing deal. And then the publisher's job is to go out and find as many commercial opportunities as possible. Um, meanwhile, the record label is going out and trying to find commercial opportunities for the recordings. So they're completely separate and yet they're very connected and kind of tangled up in each other. So when we're I don't remember the rest of your question. <laughs> no, 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 that was it. But uh, I think uh, with sync, you brought up sync licensing, and that was going to be my next question for you guys: is this one company, this one mega company, is spending billions of dollars to sweep up all of this music, and their idea is to is song management. So looking for uh, uh, opportunities in film, TV, video games, commercials, all this stuff. And I know you guys have heard us talk about sync licensing, and I'm, I'm sure we'll do an episode down the road, like digging into what sync licensing sync licensing is and why it's so important for all of you music artists to understand what sync licensing is because it is a stream of revenue for you to make money um important for filmmakers to filmmakers know, too, too. So know how to do it correctly right. um mm -hmm. but you've got this one company sweeping up all this music and at some point they're gonna own I imagine a majority of the desirable music that one would want to sync license out for their TV, music, commercial, video game, what have you. What does that mean for the industry that one company potentially could have the majority of syncable music? Well, one concern whenever you see consolidation like this is you know, monopoly power, right? And the most classic example of how monopoly power gets used is uh, the prices start going up because there's no one to compete with. The thing with music though, is it doesn't really fit cleanly into those sort of traditional economic rules that underpin antitrust law because there isn't really direct competition for one particular song, right? Like if you wanna hear a Lindsey Buckingham song Fleetwood Mac song that he wrote, that's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear a Mark Ronson song, right? It's completely different. But from the sync licensing perspective, it's, it's an even more complicated picture because the irony in, in the sync licensing world is that when a song is big enough, 
it gets way too expensive for films and TV shows to actually bother to sync it. So it might actually have the reverse effect of creating more competition and more opportunities for smaller independent artists who aren't part of hypnosis um, because films are going to be looking for things that aren't going to eat up their entire music budget for one song. Mm -hmm. Peter? I would, I, I would definitely agree with that and add um, that the, the, the purchase of it, maybe one of the limits in global domination takeover of all the songs that we hold near and dear to our hearts, from what I see so far, may be the newer artists that are signed to labels, the big top 40 artists right now. I mean, so far we're talking purchases of, of artists that have massive catalogs, but they're not top 40 radio right now. I mean, Neil Young, Shakira, Jimmy Ivey, Lindsey Buckingham, like these, these are artists that have had these massive careers and they have, and, and this company won't even look at you as a songwriter if you don't have a huge following, if you already aren't hitting, you know, millions of dollars. I mean, they have some metrics here we can talk about. Um, but, you know, so I think that might also be their limit because if they're able to not attract a newer type of artist, because that artist is in a ton of other agreements that are going to conflict with the mission right now. I mean, if you're on top 40 and you're really getting, you know, radio airplay, you've already got rights management people around you. I think the older catalogs that we're talking about that are purchased just aren't, 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 aren't touched upon enough. And I think that's the mission of this, this company is to re, you know, to increase value on stuff in other ways that people aren't currently doing. And I think that they're going to carve out a nice place in the industry if they keep that their mission, but it also might limit their ability to get newer artists. What are those metrics that you're looking at? Um, what did I say? You said you were looking at metrics. Uh, uh, you were talking about uh, the, the fact that they Cut won't that even time. really look at you if, unless you're, yeah. you're meeting a certain tier of following and hits and revenue. And because I, 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 that makes sense that they wouldn't because they're betting on this reliable stream of income from a specific song. So that, that makes sense that they would, they would not even touch you unless you had a certain amount. The value, I mean, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing too. We're talking investing. And even though, you know, a, a publisher is still investing in buying a catalog of songs. I mean, if they threw a, a $10 million advance at someone, which whatever, I mean, you'd have to be a huge star to get something like that. But if they did something like that, they're investing. They're hoping that they're going to increase the revenue to that. This is the same thing to be true here. So, um, I, I don't, um, think, <sighs> sorry. So if I can jump in, I mean, I think part yeah, of cut, what, can, can you just, wait, wait, hold up. Yeah. Cut that. My computer is doing something weird. Go. Sorry. So if I could jump in here, I mean, I think the, the thing to really focus on here is where the, the value in what hypnosis is doing, I think is most clearly illustrated by comparing it to the business models that record labels and even publishers to some extent utilize, which is they're, you know, signing, they're in the pro they're in the business of generally signing new artists, trying to catch fire every time they sign, let's say 
just as a sort of dummy numbers here, but let's say they sign 20 new artists in a year and one or two of them will have a big hit. And that's pretty much the nature of how a record label goes about making money is they, they find all these people who they think have a really good chance of making money for them, but knowing realistically that the vast majority of them won't. And so they, spend money, invest in getting these people on the label, invest in getting them to record their songs, all that kind of stuff. But then their promotional efforts and their commercial exploitation of the music only goes as far as, you know, what's hot right now. Right. And, you know, to be fair, when you're signing a new artist, they're not necessarily going to have a big catalog already. So hypnosis is deliberately putting itself in a different position, but to points that you guys both brought up just a few minutes ago, once a song isn't that hot anymore, a label doesn't have the resources to keep pounding the pavement with it and to keep finding opportunities for it. And so what happens is a lot of artists material just kind of ends up sitting on the shelves at these labels and these publishers, because those companies can only really focus on what's, cutting edge and what's going to make them money, what kind of new artists they can pitch to someone who they can get on a TV show, all of these things that are really subject to the very kind of fickle nature of audiences. Whereas when you have these established catalogs and you have this philosophy of song management kind of, you know, I think that the terminology is important because it echoes artist management where, you know, an artist manager is, side by side with that artist finding every possible commercial opportunity and not letting up just because an artist isn't hot right now they keep working even when that artist is in year 27 of their career year 30 year 40 you know i'm sure bob dylan still has a manager who's still finding new ways for him to make money or at least bringing you know bob some ideas every once in a while and so what i think hypnosis is trying to do is they're saying look we have these songs that already have this cultural cachet, right? We know that if we find ways for these songs to re-enter the public consciousness, that they're going to make money because we know people already like them. They may not be a hit. We're not necessarily going to go out and try to get these back on the radio or anything like that, but we have this baked in value that is only as good as the opportunities you find for it. And so I really think that it's, it's this sort of combination of a different philosophy and a different business model that's going to allow them to, you know, continue to create and maintain value for these catalogs over the long term. So speaking of... Which you really need, right? I mean, yeah. it's life of the author plus 70 years, and most of these artists are still alive. So while they're still alive, there is no risk of this music falling into the public domain. And even then, you have another 70 years beyond that. So there's you know, a huge hill to climb, really. So speaking of cutting edge and finding new opportunities for these songs, uh, they're dipping into one of our favorite subjects, which is NFTs, it's the future. Uh, and on the Hypnosis website, they have a clickable link page that only has three lines that say, to license our music for NFTs, email here, you can click it, and someone on the team will get back to you. We look forward to collaborating with you. That tells me they understand, A, the value in, in their, the catalogs that they've acquired, and B, they understand the value of NFTs and the direction that NFTs are going. And 
with the kind of stuff they have acquired, it's I can only imagine what kind of income they're going to make off of NFTs. Mm-hmm. And remember, as we talked about in our NFT episode a couple weeks ago, they're really highlighting the fact that the owner of the copyright and the owner of the NFT are not necessarily the same. And so it's really just, I think that, you know, it's good to see music companies taking a clear position on this and saying, you know, copyright is not going to be just trampled on as NFTs get bigger. We're going to step in and we're going to control this from day one. Peter, where do you and, see this and, going? And also, well, also with the NFTs is, you know, just sort of thinking it out, like you may have, I mean, what, what is a situation where if they're only doing public performance rights or doing, un, uh, you know, lyrics, melody, composition, in the publishing world, what about the master world? So I know that we're getting into sort of like the token blockchain kind of world here. But I, we, as we talked about last time, a lot of these um, artists, musicians that are making NFTs are actually, you've got your digital certified original there, but then you also are given an experience. And often that experience is actually some sort of public display of the actual intellectual property that's folded into the NFT. So I wonder how this investment firm plans to to work and license out maybe a co-venture with people that are making claims under the master for the for the NFT. I don't know. I think that's an open question because if you're if you're if you're taking a song, fine, you're good on the lyrics, melody, composition, all of that stuff. But if you're putting it down into some sort of recording as part of an experience for somebody, then you're sort of implicating the master in a way. So I, I, I'm, I guess I'm just talking off the top of my head here, but I, I think that there might be dual interests in the NFT world between the master owner and the, uh, you know, the, the, the um, publishing owner, the copyright owner. So I don't know, just a thought. I'm not sure how they're going to work that out. But yeah, they're saying we're going to handle your NFTs. Well, what does that look like? Yeah. Just the NFT itself, fine. But the public display of it, you might implicate the master. Yeah. All right, we got about a minute. We got to wrap it up. Okay, real quick, uh, Max, give us your like 30-second breakdown of what you think about the Hypnosis Fund and what they're doing. I think long-term, it's going to have the impact of raising the value of music. I think if we, if we see hypnosis be successful in this song management approach that it's it's going to demonstrate to publishers and possibly even to labels as well that they may need to sort of rework the way that they monetize music and the way that they establish the relationship with the artists and the songwriters peter you're on the clock what you think i think that um it will work best if both elements work in tandem with each other the 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 management side the song management side that we've been talking about and then the financial investment side and i think if this company can effectively um do both at the same time i think this is a great project but you've got to have good investors that are investing in other kinds of securities which they do and you have to make sure that those investments are good good buys and 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 are going to grow the portfolio overall and at the same time, you have to increase more interest and value in the in the copyright too. So it sounds like there's two teams here. They both need to be successful to make this work. I think they have a good shot. 
Okay, guys, uh, thanks for watching Law on the Limelight. Like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment letting us know what you think about the Hypnosis Fund. We want to hear your thoughts. Uh, we put out a new podcast every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. If you want to know more about our specific law practices, visit parlatorylawgroup.com where you can find the contact information for all of us, mine, Peter's, Max's, whoever you want to talk to, you can find us. We also decided... We want to talk to you guys even more. So every Friday, we will be holding a clubhouse discussion of that week's topic. So this week, we're going to be talking about the hypnosis fund. And if you want to chime in on the discussion, ask questions, share some insight, send us an email at lawinthelimelight at politorylawgroup.com. That's the one I want you to send it to. And we will send you an invite to our clubhouse so that we can uh, talk. For now, I'm Winton. I'm Max. And I'm Peter. And we'll see you next week. One of our rules is telling you about the other rules. First thing you should know is nothing we say here is legal advice. And you shouldn't take it as legal advice. We'll be giving our personal thoughts and opinions on various entertainment industry issues. And we hope that it's informative maybe even educational for you. But if you have a specific legal issue, then I recommend you contact an attorney directly and set up a consultation where they can give you legal advice. And the second thing you should know, even though we all work for the same firm, it doesn't mean that we all speak on behalf of our whole firm. And opinions expressed are solely our own. Final words of warning depends on what state you're in. While you're watching or listening, be aware that Law on the Limelight may be considered attorney advertising. And that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed listening. So without further ado, Please enjoy, please enjoy, Law in the Limelight, Law in the Limelight, please enjoy, please enjoy, Law in the Limelight.